I'll draw your attention to the 11, 8 through 11. Well, I don't suppose that Joseph had any idea when he told his brothers that I had a vision. And in my vision, you, my brothers, are going to bow down to me. I don't suppose he thought for a minute that that would send him into slavery in Egypt. And I don't suppose that Jacob, when he had a favorite son and made it very clear to the other brothers, I have a favorite son, and I'm going to prove it by giving him a coat of many colors. I don't suppose that he thought that he would lose his son for many years and not know where he was at, thinking he was dead. Relationships is, the, is what this message is about today. It's more of a teaching than it is a preaching. Relationships, the title of the message is Glorifying God in Our Relationships. It's not going to be so much a sermon as it is hopefully a teaching, although I will be speaking from several scriptures. I would like to be very practical. We all know that we're supposed to love one another. We know we're supposed to, be, to guard our tongues. But how do we have relationships? That is the, the message for today. Relationships matter. And all of you have any age at all on you, and most of you have relationships. You have father, mother, brother, sister, brothers and sisters in the church, and you know that they matter. Now, I don't suppose that very many of you, if you get it wrong, will end up being sold into Egypt as a slave. But the fact is that it does matter. One of the things that it will bring about is sin. Over and over again, when I get around people who are struggling with a sin problem, as somewhere in the back of it is difficulty with relationships. Now, we could spend a lot of time trying to find out, is it because which came first, the bad relationships or the sin? But one of the things that I have noticed over the years, years ago, I came to realize, and I've talked to other people that came to the same conclusion, whenever you see Teenage pregnancies, unwed mothers, a flirty disposition in girls, it almost always, if not always, almost always, there's a bad relationship between that girl and her father. And many times, it's not her fault. Sometimes she's been abused. But sometimes, and most of the time, it's not her fault. But nevertheless, that bad relationship ended up in sin eating disorders and addictions, drugs and alcohol, pornography, often come about because we don't have a right relationship with one another. We seek, we seek a relationship in all the wrong places for all the wrong reasons because we don't have a right relationship. We don't have a godly relationship, a biblical relationship. Sin, church trouble, divorce, many of the things that we just cause, we just hate it, it causes grief 
in our lives. Grief in the people around us life comes about because people do not get along well with people. It has been said, that's some of the problems, but there's benefits to having good relationships. It's been said that a good technical skill will get you a job, but good people skill will make your career. John D. Rockefeller said he was an oil man, made his millions in oil, and he said that I will pay a man $20,000 a year, and that was a lot of money back in those days, I will pay $20,000 a year to the man who knows oil, and I will pay $100,000 a year to the man who knows people. People matter. Involved in distantly with a an ordination one time. And I was listening to some of the people talking about what they hoped for when the ordination happened. And one of the brothers said, you know, biblical knowledge is good. Doctrinal soundness is good. But I hope whomever we ordained knows how to relate to people. And that is so true. Church trouble usually don't come about because... The minister doesn't have good Bible knowledge. It usually comes about in leadership, causes a lot of church trouble because we don't do well in relating to people. I've been very blessed in, in being involved with our mission to Niger. You know, one of the things about a missionary, you know, we don't just, missionaries don't just stand on a street corner and start proclaiming the gospel. And maybe they do in some circumstances. But most of it nowadays, especially, is built about building relationships. For one-on-one conversations, classroom environments. And I can say, you know, Preston is there in Niger now. We sent him as a church. And one of the things he did is he spent a lot of time building relationships, trust relationships with the congregation that was going to send him. So if you want to be a missionary, learn how to have good relationships. It's important. Very important. But How? How do we go about it? I'm hoping to not spend a lot of time on preliminaries here, but how do we do it? And I would like, before this message is over, in the short amount of time I have, I hope that you understand that it can be learned. It's not inevitable. You're not born this way if you struggle with relationships. And I stand here as one who struggled with relationships more than probably anybody in this room when I was a young fellow. And I set out to learn. And a couple of miracles happened in my life and I still flub it up an awful lot of times, but I still, I do have friends. Praise God for that. You can learn. If I can learn, so can you. When you have a family someday, I hope you take a little time to learn, to teach your children how to learn relationships. Some are going to take it up naturally. Some children, I don't know, they're just born with it. They have charisma and charm and smiles and they have no trouble. They just are peacemakers. They make friends easily. And God bless you. But some of us had to work at it. And I tell you, if you are a parent someday, you might teach math and reading. You know, you might teach your son how to milk the goats or the cow. You might teach him how to repair the car. But while you're at it, teach relationships. In this circumstances, this is how to respond. This is how to enter into a conversation. This is how to speak to people who are in authority 
over you. This is what you should say, and this is what you shouldn't say. This is how you should carry yourself amongst your friends. Be specific about it. We expect to to learn it by osmosis. You know, just we're going to absorb it. There's two things we as parents make the mistake over and over again. It's something you can carry in your mind for a while. We think that children are going to learn finances and relationships by osmosis. And you can look around and see that that's not the way it works. Yes, we do learn a lot from the people around us, but sometimes we learn the wrong things. So be a student. Be a student of relationships. This message is mostly about, you know, the bearings of our life are going around and around. And we can be pouring oil into those bearings. We can be neglecting the bearings. And we can even be pouring sand into the bearings. You know, the shock absorbers of our life. How rough a ride would you like to have? Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you, needy people. Our relationship with you was broken there in the garden. When we sinned, we all in Adam fell. We all in Adam sinned. We all in Adam have had a broken relationship with you, our dear Father. And you have set out to reconcile us to yourself. And you've pled with us to be reconciled with God. And Lord, we pray that we would learn to be reconcilers one with another. I pray that you would anoint this little message. That it would go forth. It would bear fruit. It would be from you. Your spirit would move. And it would go beyond the words and into the heart. Pray in Jesus Worthy name. Amen. You have your Bibles open to 1 Peter 3. And I would like you to see something in that passage that maybe you haven't noticed before. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 11. Let's read that together. Finally, be ye all of one mind. These are several relationship verses, several Passages we're going to go to. This is a relationship passage. Finally, my, finally, be ye all of one mind. Have compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Knowing that you are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. And this is the verse I want you to really notice. In this part of the message. For he that will love life. For he that will love life. And see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Let him pursue peace. Relationship verse. But I want you to notice. He that will love life. And see good days. This isn't just a spiritual thing. You know, God wants you to be nice. And so you need to be nice because God told you to. That's not the point. You know, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus said, what do you want? Jesus didn't, Bartimaeus didn't say, oh, Jesus, I just want to spend more time with you. I want to have a closer walk with you. I want to get to know you better. Teach me the things of the Spirit. That's not what he said. He said, I want to see. I want my eyes. 
God cares about our daily life. Jesus healed Bartimaeus. And He wants us to have a good life. To love life. And to see good days. And He says, do it. There's a way. There's a, there's a practical step so we can take to love life. And see good days. God cares about our relationships. God cares about our life skills. And it's all in the Word of God. In 1936, a book hit the market. It has become a perennial bestseller. I checked today, or in the past week, it is the 11th bestseller on Amazon's list of bestsellers in nonfiction. The Library of Congress calls the book the seventh most influential book that has ever been written in the United States and has sold 15 million copies. 15 million copies of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. But I want you to know that Dale Carnegie was divorced. It's a book that I would, I could actually say I could recommend the book. But we need a lot more than a how-to manual. We need a lot more than a how-to manual. In the beginning, there were good relationships. And then there was the fall. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. There was beautiful and right relationships. And I don't believe that animals killed each other. I think Adam and Eve were vegetarians, if I understand the Scriptures right. There was good relationships. But now the fall. Years ago, an event happened to me that I won't soon forget. A man came into our store there in Tennessee. He bought some things and he obviously wanted to talk. And he began to describe his life. He was in his upper 50s, a little older than I am now. And he was a truck driver. And he had been driving truck for years. He loved to drive truck and he loved the lifestyle of trucking. There's a lot of sin many times in a trucker's life. They are away from their families for long periods of time. He ended up having a daughter and his wife, and his wife left him. Couldn't take his lifestyle, couldn't take the aloneness. And he said, I didn't care. I love my truck, I love my job, and I love the lifestyle. My wife turned my daughter against me, and I didn't care. I just went on driving truck, and the girls in the truck stops. I had a good life. But he said, a few weeks ago, I was driving down the road, and it just hit me. He said, it was sudden. It was just like out of the blue. He said, I started crying. He said, everything that matters in life, I don't have it. All I have is my truck and my money. In my lifestyle, I don't have any relationships in my life. Here was this 55-year-old man weeping in front of me. And he was on his way at that moment. He just stopped at our little store. He was on his way to Florida. And he hoped to at least build a relationship with a daughter he hadn't seen in years. And a granddaughter he had never seen at all. Broken relationships happens all the time. Over the years, I've known a situation of a man who has many, many broken relationships, a trail of broken relationships. 
I was talking to a man that knows him well. He said he's burned every bridge behind him. Another, another man also with broken relationships, and I think he's a born-again man, but he's incompetent. Relationships are difficult for him. He's alienated his children, several of them. He's had a lot of difficulties. And I would just say this at the outset. When behind us, when we hit 50 years old, and behind us is a long row of broken relationships, we look behind us, there's hardly any of the friends we started out with. Our children have left us. We're having a difficulty with our wife. I talked to a man one day that was in that situation. He says, Clint, there's one common denominator in all these stories. It's me. It's me. I'm doing something wrong. And believe me, it's not just method. It is a heart that is many times wrong. And I would like to not miss that before this message is over. In Romans 3, we went to 1 Peter 3. Now at Romans 3, 13 through 19. If you have your Bibles there, you can turn to it. What is wrong with us? Why does churches split? Why is there so much marriage trouble? Why do we struggle to get along with our siblings or our dad or our mother or our boss or our employees? Why is it so hard? In Romans 3, we often read this passage. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We, we go to that passage to describe and understand what's wrong with man. We are all sinners. That's where we go to. That's one of the key passages we go to to say that we're all in the same place together before God. We all need Jesus Christ. We're all fallen before God no matter where we're at, no matter what our background, Jew and Gentile, church member and raised in the church, whatever. We all need God. That's the passage we go to. But I would like you to notice the result of this fallenness starting the 13th verse. And it's relational. One of the things that happens to the broken mankind is relationships are broken. Their throat, 13th verse, Romans 3. Their throat, just notice the relationships here. The, the, the interaction with man to man, woman to woman. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. It all goes all the way to Cain and Abel. Cain slew Abel because of sin. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And that's a fact. If you have a bad relationship, destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. When we are broken, we have no right relationship to God. We don't even know how to have peace. Peace is so far from us, we don't even understand it. I was reading a book that's called Hillbilly Elegy. It's an interesting book about the, the, the whole culture down in Kentucky in which everyone is poor, there's drug problem, alcohol problem, suicide problem, teenage pregnancies, marriages are a mess. And one of the things this man says about this whole culture is that when they fight, they don't know how to just have a disagreement where they work through and come up to the other side. They get knives out and pots and pans and hit each other and stab each other. They, the way of peace they have not known. They don't even know how to fight a good fight. He was fascinated when he went to a different home and spent some time. And he's, he was just fascinated to watch the husband and wife 
disagree and come together. He'd never seen that before. It was fascinating that people can actually learn how to work through their disagreements, the way of peace they have not known. I hope by the time the message is over, you'll realize that I can't balance it. I have more notes at home than I do in front of me. I thought this was going to be an easy message, but I realized that I could be a series or maybe in a multitude of series of messages. When you start talking about humans, you're talking about one of the most complicated creatures God ever created. And we have a lot wrong with us. But I would like to point out to you that in Matthew 6.33, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And I would like you to understand too, very clearly, that even though this is going to be a little bit of a how-to message, it is not in the doing, but in the being. It is not in the doing, but in the being. And you, and you, if you've got any difficult relationships in your life, you know what I'm talking about. There's people out there, they, they're, they're difficult people to get along with. And, 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 and there's, and there's, they have lots of difficult relationships. You look at them and you say, there's something wrong. Maybe you even talk to them and they say, prove it. And so you try to, why, why are they, why are they so often? Why do they come across as condescending or, or proud or, or overbearing? Why do they seem like they're dominating and they come to a brother's meeting or in a, in a situation? And it seems like it's just everybody feels on edge and, and you try to, and they'll say, well, prove it to me. Tell me what I just did. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. And maybe that comes across sincere. Maybe they really want to know. But then you start saying, well, this is what you did. And they defend it. They don't realize there's a root down deep that is causing grief. And how do you tell people about the root? It is in the being. So don't, ever, don't mistake. God came not to teach us a new way of living, but to change our hearts, to write His laws in our heart to transform us by the renewing of our mind, to change what's inside of us so that we can have the love of Christ flowing forth out of our lives to our brothers and sisters and to the world around us to be channels of God's love. So this is not a how-to message entirely. I want you to get that. So maybe we just need to all get born again. Maybe that's the problem. Years ago, I was at a, in a church setting on a Sunday afternoon and in rolled a van. A whole van load of brothers got out of the van. I don't know, it might have been eight or ten of them. They got out of the van and, and we began to interact. One, a group from one church, they came to ours. And they came to our church and they, and they began to describe what had happened in the recent past in their fellowship. God had come down, there had been a great revival they began to describe that God had moved. People got born again. People got their relationships right. They confessed sin and assurance of salvation. It was a beautiful thing. I just loved to hear the stories. I was fascinated. You know, the Bible says there in, in the First Thessalonians, but as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God. Oh, that's a beautiful... I love that phrase. I love it a lot. But these men came, and the reason why they were in our driveway is because they weren't getting along very well together. I think they truly were born again. I think God had really worked, and yet they had a problem. It says, as that verse continues, you need not that I write unto you, 
You yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it towards all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. So God says do it. But how do we do it? Why is it not working? Whenever there's a command in the Bible, we know that it's not automatic. If God says the first command is to love God and the second one is to love one another, that means that it don't come natural. And that's a universal principle throughout the Bible. Don't ask God to do something He's told you to do. If God has commanded it, don't say, well, God, why don't you do it? It's a command and it must be obeyed. So I would like to start getting practical here. In 1 Corinthians 13, and everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you, I hope, can quote it. In 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And that, if you want to just know about relationships, you could spend your time reading 1 Corinthians 13 over and over again. There's other, there's other uh, parts of the Bible we could go to. Some we just alluded to. But I want you to notice one scripture. And I think it maybe is a starting point. Several starting points. But this will be one starting point for relationships. The seventh verse, it says, Beareth all things, believeth all things. Believeth all things. I would like to talk about that phrase just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 13. We could do the whole thing. I can't cover everything there is about relationships here today. But believeth all things doesn't mean that Christians are gullible. Christians believe anything they hear. That's not what it means. You do a little study of that word, and it has it's a word that's like faith, only it denotes faith in men. It's a word that says you give people the benefit of the doubt. You give room for people's weakness. You try to believe the best about people. You see them in the light of the grace that God has poured into you. You say, well, God gave me grace. I'm going to give that person. That's a big word. Believeth all things. You, Some of you girls got a little foretaste of part of this message. You know, one of the things that, that God hated about the children of Israel, what they were doing to Him when they were traveling through the wilderness, they complained. And I've often wondered, you go through the Old Testament, you find that the prophets also challenged God. God, you, you're a just God. You're a loving God. You made these promises and you keep your promises. So why? Why is this happening to us? Why is these bad things happening? Because you are a good God. The children of Israel, that's not the way they saw God. They're in the wilderness. They didn't, they treated God, as I like to say, as an ogre, as an evil beast. You brought us into this wilderness to slay us. They were not believing all things concerning God. And that so has a practical application. When you go to your parents, young people, and you have a disagreement, maybe you have an appeal you would like to make, they've said no, and you would like them to say yes. And you don't know how to get them to change their mind. I can tell you, you may not change their mind, but you go to your parents, and most of you, I believe, have parents that love you. They would do anything for you. They would lay down their lives for you. They have your best interest at heart. 
And you go to them with that knowledge. And you make sure that they know that you know that. You go to them and say, I know you love me. I know that you want the best for me. I know that you don't want me to come to harm. You let them know that. And you may not change their mind. They still may stay where they're at. But you will build trust. And then it will go in reverse. They will believe all things concerning you. You know, I know for me and my children, if I know my children, and I know their hearts, I know their motives, I know their values, I know they got, they're, they're connected to me, I open the doors pretty wide for my children. They have a pretty wide area because I can believe all things concerning them. So relationships is partly, when we have a loving relationship one with another, we believe all things concerning one another. And we can do that in our brothers' meetings. You know, over the years, there's things that can go wrong in a fellowship. I know a church right now that's struggling to have an ordination. And the problem is that they have a long history that goes back, a complicated history. And they look at one another and they have a hard time believing all things concerning one another. And they just, there's been things happen. You know, we have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That means we don't, we don't, somebody, every time he comes, he hits us over the head with a club. We probably better be kind of getting, you know, ducking a little bit. But we also need to forgive 70 times 7. A Christian believeth all things means that there's a new page every day. A new chance every day. And that's a hard one. That's a very, very hard one. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 11 has another phrase in it I would like to talk about. Be pitiful, be courteous. We just read that. Be pitiful, be courteous. Pitiful. That's a word that's in the new translations would say tender hearted. And it simply means empathy. Now, empathy is not the same thing as sympathy. Empathy is the ability to feel the feelings of others, to sense their pain, to sense their joy. We are to sorrow with those that sorrow. We're to rejoice with those that rejoice. We are to suffer with prisoners as though bound with them. Empathy means that we can feel what they feel. When someone has... Their, their son has come to the Lord. We should rejoice with them. When they have had a loss, a death in the family, we should sorrow with them. And it's not just a command. We should feel their pain a little bit. Apostle Paul talks about, I am with you in spirit. There needs to be that empathy of feeling that your pain is my pain. When we see someone crying, we should want to reach out. You know, one of the things that if you have ever studied anything about psychopaths, a psychopath usually is a murderer and they do terrible things to people, torture and, and rape and terrible things. And when they study these psychopaths, that's one of the things they find is they seem to be totally unaffected by other people's emotions, other people's pain and circumstance. God has called us to be empathetic one of the examples, you know, Joseph 
I started out with the story of Joseph. And keep in mind, God blessed what happened there. God can take our worst circumstances and our worst sins, and He can, He can bring light, He can bring beauty from ashes. He can take us out of the pit. But the pit sometimes is a pit we've made for ourselves. So I don't want to overplay Joseph. But I want you to understand a little bit the concept of empathy. If Joseph would have saw his dream through the eyes of his brothers, would he have told them the dream? Maybe he did. Maybe he just just wanted to hurt them. Maybe he just wanted to, to rub him in a little bit in the dirt. Maybe they were having an argument. I don't know. But the fact is, that dream caused, and the telling of it, caused his brothers to hate him. Because he were how many, okay, if you just think about you young brothers, you know, if you, you have friends at the church and somebody walks in someday and struts up and comes to you, the crowd of you and says, you know what? I just had a dream last night. Someday I'm going to be the elder in this church and I'm going to tell you what to do. How well would you take that? Because you're not seeing, you're not seeing, you, maybe God did tell you that, but you're not seeing it through the eyes of other people. Rehoboam is another example. We often hear the story of Rehoboam, how that he, he took the counsel of the, of the young men rather than the old men, and you know, it's a, a wrong people to listen to. But did you ever think about it from an empathy point of view? The people came to him and said, you know, we've been taxed too much. We've been oppressed too much. And Rehoboam just said, ah, I'm going to whip you with scorpions. He wasn't seeing it from their point of view, and he lost the kingdom. Empathy means we can, we're, we look, we stand inside of other people's shoes and see the circumstance through their eyes. That's what empathy does. Be courteous. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not just old fashioned manners, by the way. Please. Thank you. Can I pour you a cup of coffee? I'll, I'll stand behind you in line. Be courteous. And by the way, boys, being courteous, having good manners is not sissy. It's, some people have called it the oil of relationships. It's just what keeps the, the oil of human interactions from getting too rough. It's a sand in the bearings. The next topic I would like to cover here is proactive listening. Proactive listening. And I added a word you've talked, you've all heard about listening, but I'm going to use the word proactive listening and you'll understand why listening if you are a good listener i can assure you that you'll be the most popular person in the room if you are a good listener being a good listener is a gift but it's also a talent a listen, a good listener doesn't just be quiet. We often hear, you know, you know, shut up and listen. That's not right. The right way to listen is proactively. When you listen, you know, the worst thing in the world is that cold stare. After a while, you know, the person talking runs out of steam, not sure where to go with this thing. A good listener is one who engages with the person talking. He makes eye contact. Maybe throws in an interjection. Yeah, that's in 1 John. Yeah, I experienced that too. Don't interrupt, but interject. You get that the person now knows that you're actually, actually listening. We can make more friends 
in two months of being interested in other people than we can in two years of trying to get them interested in us. Listening is one of the great ways that we show people that we love them. Many, many people need a, a listening ear. Listening is hard work. I know I try very hard, and sometimes on a Sunday afternoon, I come away, and I haven't done much talking, but I come away almost exhausted. Learning to listen and listen well is hard work. Learn to be a good listener. And as you listen, you know, one of the things that happens is people talk and there'll be this, this, this intimidation tactic, you know, the, the cold stare. There's also the objection or the interruption. And one of the ways that I have seen before, you know, you make the statement, we should obey the speed limit. Well, the right response to that is, yes, it's part of being a good citizen and obeying the Word of God. Uh, yes, but not in Chicago. You know, you can always find something wrong. You know, especially, you know, you take the doctrinal differences. You know, you, you, you throw something out and you haven't covered all the bases. You didn't intend to cover all the bases. And someone tells you where this doesn't apply. Objection. Constant objection. Doesn't work. Love-directed listening. Love-directed listening. That's a counseling term. That means that you're listening through ears of love. You love the person. You want to know what they really are saying. One of the great gifts that I was given in my life was to spend time with a great listener over a period of about six years. And he was a man who, when you talk to him, even if he didn't agree with you, he will replay back to you in his own words an abbreviated version of what you just said. And then, maybe he would say, well, I heard you. Now you knew he really heard you. I, I, I got it. You know, I don't think he was listening. But with him, you always knew he got it. Because he'd replay it back. And then if he disagreed or had an objection, then he followed up. He made sure you knew that he got it. And then, he would give the objection. You know, you think about... You know, maybe, maybe you disagreed with Larry the other day. Larry's, Larry convinced us that it was not going to be a secret coming. Jesus, is, the rapture is not going to be a secret thing. But maybe you're having a conversation with Larry and you replay it back. Yes, based on what you just said, you maybe you replay the scriptures. But I think that scripture in Matthew 24 applies too. Now Larry knows you heard him and now you can have a conversation. Replay back. The next part I'd like to talk about is speaking skills, and they're every bit as important. You know, one of the things that happens sometimes in our settings, and probably everywhere, is somebody will have a sermon about being quiet, and then that Sunday afternoon you don't get anybody to talk because everybody's trying to obey the sermon. Now, that's the worst thing in the world. Sunday afternoons when everybody's trying to outcompete each other to be the most quiet just don't work out real well. We do need to speak. And I can tell you this too. I don't know how your homes are, 
But don't make supper time and breakfast time, wherever you have a meal time together, that is not a time to wolf down the food and run. It is a time to have conversations. It is a time to, us fathers need to learn to teach during those times. Not in a, in a sermon, in a pontifical way, but in, a, in an interactive way. It is a time to have good conversations. As a basis for that, I would like you to just notice the Scripture in Ephesians 4. And I, I've got my Bible open to that, and I, I just don't have time to read the whole thing. If you go to Ephesians 4, the 25th verse through the 5th chapter, 4th verse, is all about relationships. If you're struggling in relationships, it would do you good to read that portion of Scriptures from 425 all the way through to 5.4 over and over again and get the message of Ephesians 4. I would call it the rules of relationship. You can put that in your Bible if you want to. The rules of relationships. They're good. They're very important. But I would like to you to notice in the verses right before the ones I told you about in the 22nd through the 24th verse, it's the new creature. It's the old man being put off, the new man coming forth. It is a renewed mind. It is God's miracle. And it just jumps right in from that miracle, from the new birth, right into the, probably one of the longest portions on relationship we have in the Bible. I would like to draw attention to the, the 29th verse. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. That's the 29th verse. Let no corrupt communication. And then the fourth, the fourth chapter of Colossians, the sixth verse, has a similar thought. And that's something you just, if you Bible students in the room, understand. Colossians and Ephesians are parallel books. Don't read one without the other. They're very interchangeable. And, they, and often you can understand if, uh, if you're a difficult passage in Ephesians will be explained in Colossians. But in Colossians 4, 6, it says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. So we know from those two passages, there are parallel passages, that we know that they are to be no corrupt communication, which means rotten and worthless. Corrupt communication is, be careful. Not only do we not want to use bad language and dirty speech and all that, but it also means worthless speech, vain speech, idle words. Let no idle words proceed out of your mouth. That's a big call for humanity. But also that it may minister grace to the hearers. So that's the other thing we know about our words. Grace is the attributes and the gift and the beauty and the strength of God unmeritedly poured into us to strengthen us. And our job with our words, is to administer grace. Think about that. We expect, we think God gives us grace. But Paul says here in Ephesians that we minister it to others with our words. We can also, maybe one way we can understand that best is sometimes we can do the opposite. Curses. You know, you're ugly. You'll never amount to anything. I don't like being around you. You're a difficult person. Those are curses. I find 
over and over again as both a pastor and a father and as a boss. And I don't do a good job at it. But if I want to be effective, I wait till somebody does it right and then speak to it. Thank you. That was a good job. That was, that's good. And don't also follow up with, you haven't been doing very well lately. You can minister grace. It edifies and it builds up. Yes, there's a time for rebuke. And I'll talk about that, I hope, if I have time. There's a time for rebuke. There's a time for speaking clearly. But most of the time, if you can somewhere in there show that you see the good. That person, I know I had a man in my life when I was young that saw some good in me. And he spoke to it. He saw it. And he made sure that I knew that he saw it. I tell you, it stretched me. I rose to the occasion. Be that for others. Seasoned with salt. Kind of connecting some thoughts here. Seasoned with salt. That makes them easy to digest. It's wor- you season your word with salt. You know, nothing, nothing worse than meat or eggs without salt. Salt makes, or try popcorn without salt sometime. Seasoned with salt. Make the words that you speak digestible. Make it so that they can take them down. Make them taste good. Wit and wisdom and charm. Those are words we don't use very often. But they're, they're cultivate the ability to speak in such a way that people are glad to listen. I wrote down some, just a, kind of a list, a running list here of speaking skills. And it probably doesn't cover all the bases here. I'll go through them quickly. I already mentioned that speaking around the table or a Sunday afternoon is important. Silence is not golden. So, here would be a couple of points. Slow or overly detailed. Slow or overly detailed. Taking way too long and far, far too much information. We think five times faster then we can speak. So you're dragging this out and dragging it out and dragging it out. After a while, your listener just hoping you'll surely get done. Too fast or too quietly makes it difficult to follow. We don't even not sure what you said. Too loud. So as to be embarrassing. You know, some people they just blast us, you know, and maybe they're talking about something they really sh- Shouldn't be talking, you know, been public about, and they're talking in the hallway, and it's really loud. Harsh or hateful. You know, I used to be around a man who would come over on a Sunday afternoon, and he had a long list of grievances about all the past churches he had been in, and, and all the elders that had abused him, and all the inconsistencies that he had been a part of. And, and it was very hard. At the end of the day, he left. Oh, I just didn't feel very good. Harsh. Hateful, negative speech. Irrelevant or illogical. You ever been around somebody that just kind of always misses the point? They walk up to you and you're having a conversation and they throw something in that don't even apply. And they didn't, they didn't wait for the context. They missed the point. 
You know, we even have it sometimes at brothers' meetings. We're just we're going along. We've got a subject at hand. All of a sudden, somebody throws in this 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 odd subject. Whoa, where did that come from? And it throws everything into a tipsy topsy turvy. What are you going to do now? Droning on about trivial things that interest them, but not the other person. You know, you, I'm talking, and you don't want to hear what I have to say. I I spent. Uh, it was probably about four hours one morning listening to a man who was a beekeeper. He spent four hours telling me about bees. Now, I don't raise bees, never been around bees. Now, I want to make a point here. He was interesting. He made it interesting. And I actually was fascinated the entire four hours. But it was a dangerous thing to do. And that's where one of the other points comes in. You may be very fascinated by a subject and you're beginning to talk. Watch the body language. That's good for us preachers, by the way. We can walk, sometimes I can tell I've lost my audience. So when we see someone's eyes are kind of glazing over, they're, they're kind of looking at their watch, maybe, you know, kind of trying to, it looks like they're always looking for an excuse to leave. Stop! You know, come in for a landing, and that's the next point. You know, some people, you know, they just don't know when to stop. They, they, I know a brother, I almost feel sorry for him. He gets started, and it's almost like somebody needs to jump in. It's all right, you can stop now. You know, just, you know, come in for a landing. Preachers need to do that too. We need to come in for a landing. Another thing is age and experience appropriate. Maybe you know what I mean by that. You know, it's pretty bad when the youngest and least experienced person in the room is doing all the talking. Some lessons. And then run-on speeches. There's different ways of that. Uh, you know... Maybe you get sit down on a Sunday afternoon and you, and you just broach a subject. You know, hey, that, that man, the, the, the sermon was about this, and what do you think? And the man launches. For the next half an hour, he's going on and on and on and on. Stop. If that's you, stop a moment. He may make, a, make a comment. It might even take a little bit. But stop and then ask a question. What did you think? You know, this, this part puzzles me a little bit. What do you think? Stop and open up the door so the other person can speak. So I have a challenge for you today. The first challenge, I missed it. Give a compliment. Encourage someone today. The other challenge I have for you is ask an open-ended question. Ask an open-ended question. I actually learned that where Joe Root comes from, Ellensburg, Washington. I was just a terrible, interesting time being around people who knew how to ask open-ended questions. An open-ended question is a question that can't be answered with a yes or no. Okay? So today I want you to ask an open-ended question. You know, we had a message about the rapture. Hey, brother, what do you think about the rapture? Do you believe in amillennialism? Well, that'd be, I can't do that because that'd be a yes or no. But what do you think about the rapture? When's it going to happen? How did you learn to forgive in that situation? You seem to enjoy your siblings. How do you do that? Tell me your testimony. As, uh, yesterday or day before, I went to John Graber, the, our cook out there, and I says, how did Burn Christian Fellowship get its start? And it just ended up having a nice, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes of an interesting conversation. You know, you can't answer, how did Burn Christian Fellowship start? Yes. 
That would be that wouldn't work. You know, he had to answer the question. So ask open-ended questions. Smile. Be a smiler. There's nothing about uh, you know Jeremiah probably didn't do a lot of smiling. The Old Testament prophet. Time's getting away. Smile. You don't have to be the weeping prophet or the denouncing prophet everywhere you go. Be a smiler. The story is told, and it's supposedly a true story, in the 1700s. A man came to the, he came to the river, he was walking, and he realized there was no way he was going to be able to cross on foot. The river was raging, and so he stepped back and waited. And up on horseback came six men, all galloped up to the river, and you could tell they were looking around and trying to decide what to do, and and he could see they were making a decision. They were going to go across on horseback. So he ran up to one of the men and he said, Mister, would you take me across on your horse? And the man said, Yes, go ahead, jump on. He got to the other side on horseback, got off, and there was a man that had been watching from the other side the whole, the whole affair. And he came to the man and he says, Why did you go to that man out of all the six men? And asked for a ride across the river. And the man said, I was looking for a yes face. I was looking for a yes face. And, and that's a good thing to have. Have a yes face. Well, the man said, do you know who took you across the river? No. That was Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States. That's the reason why he asked. So have a yes face. You might have to carry people across the river now and then. And I know as a preacher, I like an amen face. Have an amen face. An amen face says, yeah, I'm following you. Yes, I get it. That was a good point. Preach it, brother. I love an amen face in a congregation. Have an amen face. Builds relationships. Yeah, amen from the back preacher over there. (laughs) Yes, it might save a life. A smile might save a life. It might. There was a man, it's a true story. Jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, committing suicide, died. The police found the body, and then they went to the man's apartment. They got to the apartment, and they went to the man's diary, and it was laying open there on the table. And on the diary it said this, I am going to walk to the bridge. If someone smiles at me, I won't jump. Think about that. Next point, pride and insecurities. They're intertwined, by the way. Did you know that? Insecure and shy people, it's just another way of being proud. Is life about what you're not? Or is it about what you got? Is life about what you're not? That's insecurities. If life is about what you've got, that's pride. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest to your souls. Come to me is the opposite of the cool spirit. You know what I mean when I say cool? 
cool as can't touch me. I'm unaffected. No matter what happens, everything's just fine. A cool demeanor, a cool spirit, a cool way of carrying yourself. You know, I'm not against sunglasses. I don't want you to understand. I want you to understand I wore sunglasses all the way here. The sun was in my eyes. There's nothing wrong with sunglasses. But sunglasses in the world have come to be a symbol of cool. And why is that? It's because it's a barrier. You can't see my eyes. It's a barrier between me and the world. I'm unaffected. I'm untouched. No matter what happens, I'm cool. And I just want us to understand, and it's nothing about sunglasses, by the way. I just want you to understand that too. But the opposite, a Christian is not cool. A Christian, his arms are open wide. He has the Spirit of Christ in him that says, Come to me, ye that are weary and heavy laden. I am meek and lowly of heart. I am approachable. I am touchable. Jesus was touched by the feeling of our infirmities. He wasn't cool. He wasn't keeping a distance and a barrier. Jesus, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, be aware of the cool spirit. Casual slouch. Staring off into the sunset. Be careful. But the other opposite of that is the insecurity, what you're not. The ultra-quiet, and sometimes I think maybe it's a boy versus a girl thing, I'm not sure. It's kind of the way I was thinking of it. But the ultra-quiet and the ultra-insecure, their life is about, don't, don't look, I'm not here, you won't like what you see, just stay away, I'll just observe, and that too is not the coming to me attitude. We are open, we are expansive. Open your hearts. Be, my, you know, Apostle Paul uses the word bowels. My, my bowels are open to you. And it's kind of an odd word, but it just means my, my heart, my, my, inner, my inner thoughts are towards you. Come. That's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There's also another way we put up a barrier. And that's with the many ha-has and the giggles and the, and the jokes and the stories and the, and the keeping everything light. It keeps a distance. It keeps a barrier. You know, as long as we're talking about these fun things, you won't get too close. Humility. Humility will always work. I was talking to my daughter about this message and she says, well, the big thing is humility. And it's so true. You know, it works in real life. Do I have seven more minutes? I'm probably going to go five over, so bear with me. Ben Franklin said this. He was on a self, self-help, uh, self-improvement program, and, and he decided to work on humility. And he wrote in his, his diary these words. And making progress in the area of humility especially the appearance thereof. Humility, especially the appearance thereof. Now, he was a politician, one of the most influential men that never became a president of the United States, the only one for years that we actually have on our currency. He was a man who wanted to influence people. That's what it was all about. And he found that pride and arrogance and prickliness was pushing people away. So he decided, well, I'm going to be humble. That'll draw people dead. And believe it or not, it worked. 
He became one of the most influential men that's ever lived in the United States by having the appearance thereof. And I'm calling you as a Christian. Remember Dale Carnegie got divorced. It's not a self-help program. It's not just a method. God is calling us to have a heart. So have the reality thereof of humility. Seek God for the reality thereof. Bow your heart. This happens a lot with young people. I think they, I can just tell you a story a little bit, help explain it. I was driving down the road, just had my learner's permit. One of the first times the whole family was going to church and we got on Highway 18 and they just paved it. It was as smooth as glass. Black pavement, just riding like a dream. I got careless. There was one spot in that entire 12-mile strip. There was a little bridge there, a little small, basically a culvert, and for some reason there was a pothole right smack where my tire drove into it. I blew the tire and bent the rim, and we were late to church. And I remember my dad was so hard on me, and I couldn't understand, why is he so hard on me? I know now why. I began to defend myself right away. (laughs) Why did they let a pothole be in this perfectly smooth road all these miles? And I, I made a defense of it, and I, I made light of it, and anybody would have done it. it, it, was, just, it, was, a, it was just a mistake. My dad wanted me to understand, and he wanted me to learn. He wanted me to, that's fine, you know, if I would have just simply admitted it. And he would have got a sense that I got the gravity. We could have been killed. It was the front tire. It could have been way worse than it was. And I was making light of it. I was blowing it off. Be quick to say, I'm sorry. Be quick to acknowledge your mistakes. It's part of humility. Well, I'm going to cover one couple more items here. And then I better sit down. Time gets away. In your relationships, some of you are discerning. You're very discerning people. You get it. You can see hypocrisies. You can see inconsistencies better than most people. You can see the sins. And when you look around at the world, you wonder why why everyone is so wrong. Why everything is so messed up. You can see where your preachers aren't doing it quite right. You can see where your dad's not doing it quite right. But I would call upon you that are discerning. That discernment is sometimes a cover-up for a critical spirit. And tell it like it is, truth-tellers are sometimes covering up a lack of love. Seek not to see the world as it is, but to see the world the way God sees it. And I'd help you understand that. Yes, most of these discerning people and sometimes depressed people often see the world very, very clearly. It's not like they're not seeing reality, but they're not seeing the world the way God sees it. Because God saw the sins and the hypocrisies and the inconsistencies better than anybody ever will here upon this earth. And He loved the world and gave His only begotten Son. Jesus, most discerning man that ever walked the earth, He knew what was in man. It says very clearly. He knew what was in the heart of man. And yet he got up from his knees in Gethsemane and went to the cross for mankind. We must see in all of our discerning, in all of our seeing clearly, let's see God, see it the way God 
sees it. Not the way it is, but the way God sees it. If you are going to rebuke someone, be careful that you have a good relationship with them. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking we can just soften the words up a little bit. One man was talking about a situation that he had dealt with about wrecked a church. And he said, you know, if you're going to come to me and hit me over the head with an eight-pound sledgehammer, it doesn't help much if you tied a pillow around it. It's a heart problem. When we love, it shows. When we really love from our hearts. But I can also tell you that when we don't love, that too shows. We wonder why people are always being put off by us. We have such good intentions, we think. But if you want your good intentions to be interpreted rightly, your good intentions to come be good intentions to be interpreted right, then seek a heart of love. A good interpretation will come on top of our good intentions when our heart is loving. The other thing I want to make a point of here, I talked about listening and speaking. And I want to note, you notice that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But I would also like to point out that out of the abundance of the heart, the ears hear. What you hear that brother saying, what you heard your daddy say, what you hear, heard your siblings say, if it's, going, if it's going through 1 Corinthians 13, it's going to come out right. But if it's coming through your hurts, some past experiences, through your insecurities and through your pride, what you will hear, you will be offended and relationships will be broken. Listen with a heart of love. Hear not through your pain, but through your heart of love. Not through insecurities, but from love. When it comes to relationships, personalities comes up a lot. But I would like you to understand clearly that your personality, no matter whatever it is, some of it is baked into you. It's the way you were born. But God says that He will sanctify and redeem all of mankind back to Himself. And so no matter what your personality is, no matter what your background and perspective is, if it is sanctified in the blood of Jesus Christ, it will now become useful. But if it remains natural, it is not useful in the kingdom of God. Yes, you are who you are, but let that be sanctified by the blood of Christ that that which is natural to us may become useful to God. I want to end on a note of encouragement. If you're one of those, and I couldn't cover hardly anything here today, if you are one of those who struggles with relationships, and you look back in your life and you realize the common denominator is me, I see that it's me. That's okay. You can learn. If you read the story of Joseph, back to the story of Joseph, and read about his reconciliation with his brothers, I believe he learned relationships. He wept in front of his brothers. 
He said, don't fall out by the way. He told him, you know, what you did, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He had learned how to relate to his brothers in humility. You can learn it too. And one last thing as an encouragement. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 3, 7, tells the husbands to dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Now that means that there's something you need to learn and to know. And believe me, you young men aren't married yet, but you'll find that it is a learning experience. But the Bible says to dwell with your wife according to knowledge. And the call that I have for us this morning is that dwell with your parents according to knowledge. Learn. Dwell with your siblings according to knowledge. Learn. You can learn it. Dwell with your brothers and sisters in the church according to knowledge. Learn how to relate to them. Learn to empathize with them. Find out what their heartbeat is and their heartbeat too. Learn. You can dwell with your neighbors according to knowledge. So grow in the Lord. Grow in knowledge one of another. Grow in how to be a brother. And remember one last final balancer. You know, you might still get beheaded. You might still have to go to the cross. You know, we could go to Apostle Paul and say, you know, you had a hard time. If you just soften up the edges a little bit, maybe you everything would be okay. You know, there is times we do have to speak the truth in love. But let the resistance be to the words of Christ, not that resistance to the way we came across. Let's learn how. Let's dwell with one another according to knowledge that the resistance that sometimes will take us to that cross is because we spoke the truth in love, not because somebody felt unloved. They felt like we were condescending. They felt hated. Now we have to realize that some of this is mostly just a message for families and churches. You know, that some of that all changes when we're out rebuking sin out there in the world. But God has called us to love one another with a pure heart fervently. And maybe we can learn how to go about that.